0: It's time to Accelerate! Hey friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 748 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. Hey, I have another excellent episode lined up here today. Joining me for the second time on Accelerate is my guest, Paul Smith. You may recall, Paul is an expert on storytelling And he was here on episode 239 of Accelerate to talk about his book, Sell with a Story, How to Capture Attention, Build Trust, and Close the Sale. And on this episode, we're going to dig further into the topic of why stories are so crucial for sellers and why they must become comfortable building them and telling them. And we'll also dig into Paul's new book, 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell. Now, among the topics we'll be talking about today are why you, as a seller, need to build your own sales stories, what percentage of one of your sales conversations should consist of stories? Eight specific questions a sales story should answer. And how to make your stories conversational. You know, they shouldn't be this thing. I mean, where suddenly you're in a sales call with a customer and suddenly the tone of your voice changes. And they know that sort of this pitch is coming. So, you want to make sure you avoid that moment where a scripted story sounds like a pitch. So, we'll be getting into all that and much, much more with Paul. So, if you're ready, let's jump into it. Paul, welcome to Accelerate. Hey, thanks for having me back on. It's good to be here. Yeah, well, welcome back. I should have said that and preface it. Uh, It's been a few years, but uh, it's we have a good occasion to have you come back on talk about your new book. I think last time we talked about your book Sell With a Story. And right. uh, today we're going to talk about uh, the value of storytelling in your new book, uh, 10 Stories Great Leaders Tell. Um, but I want to start off mm-hmm. and <laughs> talk about stories themselves, right? Because um, there's no disagreement for me about the value of telling stories. I feel like that's sort of integral to what my style has been over the years in terms of of connecting with customers and so on, but sometimes I feel like we're sort of storied out, right that there's a lot written about it, and everybody nods and salutes the flag that yeah, hey, stories are great, but I don't in my experience, listening to reps and monitoring rep calls and you know listening listen to recorded calls and and uh, seeing people in presentations and so on it's just like I don't see people using it. It's like they just haven't embraced it yet mm. on a wide level, as as I would hope that they would, because I think it's such an important tool. So you're sort of the expert in this. Why? Why do you think that is?
1: Well, so you, you probably you may have a better view to I than I do into if people are using it in the field, since I, I don't go do field evaluations of salespeople mm-hmm. and give them advice. And it sounds like something you probably do. Um, what well, I can tell you two things. Uh, one is I have an increasing number of people every month, salespeople in particular, taking my course and calling me and asking me for this training. And I'll go and I'll spend, you know, a day with 30 or 40 people at a time. Sure. You know, at, at each of these companies. So the, the demand is, I see for my what I do is accelerating, not decelerating. Um, yeah, the second I, thing I think I would,
0: yeah, and I'm not. Not questioning that at all. It's just, I think there's that gap between, okay, now, yeah. now, now, now we've trained it? it, now are they using it, right? Right,
1: you're right. Um, so the second thing I think I would say is that um, when, when people ask me, or even when they don't ask me, <laughs> I'll tell them, um, <laughs> what, what percentage of the time should I be telling stories? And the answer I give is 10 to 15%. That's it. No more. Right. This is not like you should walk around all day long telling stories as a leader. It's not like you should spend your whole hour in a sales call telling stories. You know, so if you do that math, if you had a one hour sales call with somebody, that's six to nine minutes that you're telling stories. And these stories should be two or three minutes long. So on average, in a one hour conversation, you might tell two or three, three minute stories. That's it. The rest of the time you're just having a conversation you're going through your sales pitch you're you're doing discovery you're building rapport you're doing all the things that mm-hmm. you normally do um, so it's not like you know you should evaluate somebody and and go oh i I don't recall you telling stories the whole time you shouldn't it should be a minority of the time and that you may go a whole hour without telling a story so so I think I want to set your expectations for it, it ought to be a, a very small minority of the time that they're actually using storytelling. Mm-hmm. But, I personally think that's gonna be some of the most powerful part of their time in front of a prospect. Is that six to nine minutes out of that hour
0: maybe yeah, well, I think that's one of the the things that'd be great to get into it in more detail here is because I think that uh again, from my conversations I have with people mm-hmm. is that stories are this thing right I mean it's like mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember the this joke I'm supposed to tell right and and they think of <laughs> stories as as not being contextual necessarily, right? But they're these standalone right. things. You know, I need to yeah, remember these stories and I need to I need to summon them at the right time, as opposed to saying yeah, this sort of happens in the flow of conversation. And yeah, I've got this this repertoire, <laughs> if you will, mm-hmm. of of stories that that are contextual at this point in time. And yeah, I'm going to use them uh conversationally as opposed to, mm-hmm. okay, now I'm telling my story. Here's my right. setup. You know, It's almost like a comedian you know, delivering a, right. a setup and a punchline. And I think, to me, that seems what, what holds people back because it's, it's it becomes this thing to them as opposed to just an integral part of what they're doing.
1: Yes. That's a very good observation. I have a few responses to that. One is you, you you nailed it when you said it's almost like a joke. And and those are the people that I know either haven't been to my class or they weren't listening because (laughs) I I get this phone call all the time or an email and it's like, Hey, uh, Hey Paul, uh, I've got a big uh, presentation next week or a big pitch or something. Um, You got any new stories I can tell? (laughs) I, I just, I bang my head on the keyboard because it's like, these aren't jokes. That's not how this works. I don't know who you are, who your client is, what you're selling, what your goal, like how on earth could I choose? That would be like saying, Hey, you got any good sales pitches I could use? Well, of course not. Like, it, right. It just doesn't work that way. So when people think about it that way, it's clear that they, they really don't know what this is. Right. The second thing I'd say is, um, the story should sound conversational, like you said. Mm-hmm. And what that means is they should come out in two different ways. One is there ought to be a, some of them should be a planned part of the conversation, just like your sales pitches, mm-hmm. right? You know you go into a sales call with, I've got these seven points I'm trying to make over the course of my time, right? Um, the story should be part of that plan. Only 10 to 15% of the words would be in the form of a story but they ought to be a planned part like when I get to this part of my sales pitch I need to give an example of when we've done a really good job for a customer before right. well that's story number 17 that's my customer success story I'm gonna tell it at that moment so it's a planned part of the conversation and and the tone of your voice shouldn't change at all when you get to that just like it doesn't change when you get to step four five six seven eight on your in your, your sales pitch you're just you're just continuing the conversation so it shouldn't be this thing that you jump out of character and, and go into and then, no, now I'm back into my sales pitch. Oh, but now I'm telling a story. Like, no, it just, it should come out, right? The, the second way should be extemporaneous when somebody asks you a question or somehow the conversation turns to a place that you didn't expect it to. And that that's when you need a repertoire of stories to draw on the right one to answer that question that came up. And again, maybe ninety percent of the time that question a question will be answered just with a fact mm-hmm. but 10 to 15 percent of the time you'll have the right story to answer that question and then you ought to just tell the story but again it ought to just be just as conversational as the conversation you and I are having now in fact I tell people if if people can tell that the tone of your voice has changed you're doing it wrong and, and I and I know mm-hmm. people are doing this because when I, when I was doing the research for the book and I was interviewing Professional buyers, right? Procurement managers, right? I asked them, "How is it that you know?" Or, um, oh, oh, here is the question: What is it that makes a sales pitch sound like a sales pitch?" And almost all of them gave me the same answer: It was when the tone of the conversation changes from conversational and extemporaneous to something that sounds scripted and memorized. Yeah. So, so good salespeople don't have a scripted and memorized sales pitch, or it doesn't sound like it's scripted and memorized because they're they're just they're good at telling it. But if they're not very good at the story and they've scripted and memorized it, it's going to come out like this other thing that is written in a brochure. And that's when the buyer knows that the sales pitch is on. And that's when the hair on the back of their neck stands up and they get really defensive. And like you don't want to create that reaction in your buyer,
0: right? Right. So so part of what it sounds like, what you're saying, and this is because I was thinking about this as as I was preparing for our conversation today and thinking back sort of you know, how I sort of Approach it is that you think about story not necessarily as, at least I don't, as, you know, hey, here's this, as you point, a scripted two minute thing. It's just that I have these experiences or I know about these experiences of which there are certain elements. And when I reach that time where I think it'd be great to illustrate, hey, what we've done for a similar type customer, similar type problems, yeah, I can, I I now have a a framework on how to structure these right. these things I know and bring them together in a way that makes sense, right? Uh as opposed to okay, you know, my fear is like yeah, when we see books with you know, x number of stories every salesperson should know, it's like they think, "Oh, I got to memorize x number of things." And it's like, "No, no, you just you need to know that here's a way to relate this information you probably already know."
1: Right? Yeah that's a that's a good way to put it. In fact, um yeah, it would be daunting uh to think that there's x number of stories that I have to memorize, but the 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 way I teach people to remember their stories, I never use the word memorize, the way to remember your stories mm-hmm. is in in the 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 basic structure of the story. There are eight questions that your story needs to answer. We probably talked about this last time, but it's been a few years, but right. the eight questions your all business leadership sales stories need to answer. All you're doing is memorizing the short, bullet-pointed answer to those eight questions, because they're things like where and when did it happen? Mm-hmm. Who's the main character? What did they want? What was the problem or opportunity they ran into? What did they do about it? How did it turn out in the end? I mean, those are basically, oh, what did you learn from it, and what should I go do now, right? Those right. are the eight questions. Yeah. So, all you have to do is remember the, the short little one or two, three-word answer to those questions, and then when you tell the story, your brain will turn that into a story. You'll, you'll basically go through those where and when it happened, etc. So you don't have to memorize five hundred words.
0: <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, I think you're right, and I, and, and to that point, I remember uh, working with a speaking coach uh, a number of years ago, and and you know she left me with this <coughs> sort of swing thought, if you will, to give it a golf analogy, which mm. was that always add detail. Right. Mm. So to your point, where, when, person's name. Now, you don't have to remember all that stuff ahead of time. You just have to be conscious of the fact you want to, when you're telling and relating a story, is these little details make it seem more real, more relatable.
1: Yeah. And, and like I said, they're they're just those eight questions basically are the important details. Right. I mean, you can add things like, well, you know, was it cold outside? Was it a sunny day? I I, I actually steer people away from that because that ends up making it sound like a high school writing exercise when you do that. Right. Right, you don't. So, so that's why I focus. People focus on these, these eight things. Those are the important details.
0: Yeah. Well, the details you talk about is a sunny day, and so on. Yeah. if if you're giving a public talk, that's one thing, right? But yeah, yeah, if you're in a conversation with somebody, it's, you know, it was a cold and rainy night when we did the, that. Right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> my eyes are already rolling in the back of my head. Right. Yeah. You never. That's the worst way to start a story ever.
0: So, I have a theory about stories. It'd be interesting to run it by you because mm-hmm. this is what. My experience has been is that i found that i 've used stories to tell the buyer 's story mm. and that that they 're all part of, sort of this construction process that what i 'm trying to do is i 'm trying to create this this buying vision, this vision story for for the buyer right what what 's it going to be like when they achieve their outcomes they want to achieve and I remember reading a long time ago uh, this quote from John Steinbeck, which you may have seen, He's, and he said, you know, if, if a story is, the quote is, if a story is not about the hearer, he will not listen. The strange and foreign is not interesting, only the deeply personal and familiar. And, and so, yeah, I've read a long time ago, I thought about that, said, well, yeah, what I'm trying to do is use my stories to build the buyer's story, right? Because this is ultimately, they need to know what their story is in order to say, yeah, this is this is what we want to do. Right, and this is Mm -hmm. who we want to do it with. Does that make sense to you?
1: It it does. Um, However, I I don't (coughs) think every story uh, can achieve that, nor should it. I I mean, imagine every story you ever told the buyer was about the buyer.
0: Well, no, it's it's not. It's not. But they they understand the context, right? That adds to them as a building block to building their story. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. So you, you might tell a story about uh another client of yours, yeah. another customer of yours that is similar to them. Right. And they can see themselves exactly. in the same situation. Well, so the story isn't about them, but they can see how it very directly applies to them and how look, this is another company that worked with us and here was their problem and here was the outcome. And they're thinking, ooh, I have that problem and I would love that outcome.
0: Right. And so you think back to the Steinbeck context is to them, you're telling a story about a similar customer, similar that's right. personal and familiar to them, right? So they, yes. they bring that in. That's a building block in their vision story. And so right. I look at the purpose of me telling stories is to help them build this their own story, right? About what yes. it's, what it's going to be like to use your solution to achieve the outcomes they want to achieve. And if you're telling stories that don't help them build that, then maybe the wrong stories.
1: Yes. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. that, okay. that makes sense. Not
0: mm-hmm. oh, good. I'm not crazy. Perfect. No, no, not at all. <laughs> Score one for me today. Um, yeah, because I think that that yeah, people and we sort of touched on this before. They think of of stories as sort of performance art rather than.
1: Oh, yeah, and that's so intimidating. In fact, I I I tell people, um, well, explicitly, don't think of it that way. In fact, um, if you, none of us are most of my clients are not actors and professional speakers, right? They're, right? they're salespeople, right? So nobody expects them to have this perfect delivery of a story, right? That, so if you stutter and stammer a little bit and you don't make the right eye contact and you fidget with your hands a little bit and you make you know, you make a lot of the little performance faux pas that, you know, you'd probably get coached out of if you had a professional coach. Uh, as long as you tell them a story that's helpful for them, they'll forgive you all those little, you know, foibles, but if you tell them a boring, irrelevant story, but you tell it to them in a way that would make a Shakespearean actor proud, <laughs> right, they will never forgive you for wasting their time. Exactly. Because right? So, it's, it's, it's all about the story, not about the delivery. This is, this is not – in fact, in my training classes and in the book, there is very little about delivery. Yep. And in fact I think I have one chapter in the book about how to deliver the story and I spend zero minutes in my training classes talking about that because it's just not important and if you're focusing on that you're focusing on the wrong thing and it, it will it will make you stop having a conversation because you start thinking performance aspects I've got to project my voice or whatever you know other kind of you don't be thinking about that at all think about having a conversation with a buyer that's it
0: yeah and I think I think what I see as sort of a key point for people is that, yeah, you're not I think what intimidates people, and we talked touched on this before, is that this idea that they're having to create out of whole cloth these these news stories and memorize mm-hmm. them. And I th- I believe what you're really teaching people is, you know, how to organize your own set of experiences mm-hmm. and relate them in a way that that yeah you know, are relevant and contextual and memorable to to your buyers.
1: Yeah, can I borrow that? I think that's good phrasing. It's much less intimidating than I think you have to come up with all these stories. You're organizing your own set of experiences. I think I like that. I think the only thing I'd add to it is, and maybe other people's experiences. Because every story, right, shouldn't be about you, but you should have stories about other people. But but, I like uh, that organized set of experiences.
0: Yeah, part of my experience. You should patent that quickly. Okay. I'm going to take it. That's fine. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, part yeah, you know, part of my experiences, I learned from other people, right? I I, yeah. I talk with my peers, I learned what they've done, and so on. That becomes part of my experience. So I'm not, I've never been uh, conscious of ever memorizing a story, yet. Yeah, you know, get me on a podcast. Somebody's interviewing me, and we start talking about sales, and we'd go for. I think I could I could be I, I immodestly say I could be entertaining for a couple hours at least, mm-hmm. but it's all stories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it's just they're not. I've told enough of them enough times that yeah, there is sort right. of a structure to it, but they're different every time based on the audience, what mm-hmm. they want to hear, and so on. And yeah, yeah this whole and issue, they should be that way, and they should be that way. I mean, and it must be frustrating for you as is yeah someone who's an expert in this is to see that we've got this. I think at least in certain segments of our sales profession the sort of increasing reliance on scripts. And mm. yeah, I was just reading an article yesterday on LinkedIn. Well, actually, I scanned it and quickly <laughs> got rid of it. Mm. Was, yeah, we sh- scripts are really good. They're not bad. They're not the evil. They're what we should all be relying on. I'm like, mm. oh, really? Um, mm. I I I My belief is that, that as we become increasingly scripted, and I've heard this on recorded calls, <laughs> is... Is clearly the customers are becoming scripted in their responses. Oh, yeah, right. the, well, you're, you're the fifth one who's called and asked me that exact same question. So I'm going to give you the exact same answer.
1: Right. Well, I, I mean, I, I should probably reserve judgment until I uh, read that article myself. But remember what I just told you when I was researching with professional buyers and asked them that question What is it that makes a sales pitch sound like a sales pitch? The answer was when things started sounded, sounding scripted. Yeah. Right? And that's like I said. That's when the hairs on the back of their neck stood up, and they got very defensive, and they started looking. They they went into evaluation and cr- critique mode. You don't want your buyer in that mode. You want them in relax and listen mode.
0: Right? Yeah, so uh, but, yeah, but
1: scripting we, immediately turns people off.
0: Sure, but that's become our default, right? The, you know, looking inside sales yeah. teams with SDRs is the SDRs are all, <clears throat> for the most part, not entirely, but a large segment of them heavily scripted, right? Right. and and it's it's funny when you listen to the calls is they'll ask a question they'll get a response and there's this pause yes you know, this notice they're looking pause, up the next thing to say looking at the next <laughs> looking up the next question right. instead of thinking about what did they just tell me and is there right. a follow-up question I should be asking to that right. it's like next question and right. well, she-
1: that, well that, that's one of the, the the benefits of storytelling is that, it it gets your audience, um, it gets you and your audience off of a script. Mm-hmm. Right. That that's that, even if it was a story you planned to tell, it still feels off script. In fact, you know, think of it like uh, when you're in college and you're, you know, in the, sitting there taking notes. The professor's at the board writing all of these formulas, and you're madly writing everything down. And then, you know, he or she turns around and just like gives you an example or an anecdote or illustrates it with a little story or something. Like, what do the students do? they put their pencil down, they lean back in their chair, and they just listen. Because, well, this isn't going to be on the test, right? This is, it's just a story, right? <laughs> it has that same effect on grown-ups, too, right? It's like, well, this isn't going to be on the test. I, yeah. I don't have to like be evaluating and poking holes in this. I, I can just relax and listen. And that, that's what you you want your buyer to do, at least every once in a while, right?
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting you brought that up with a university professor, because I remember I had a professor, and I was thinking about this uh, not that long ago. <laughs> it's something I was writing. And I as I was reevaluating. I was like, "Oh yeah, I've, I've actually—that's really stuck with me. I've been using this technique for my entire careers." Yes, he would stop the lecture. He'd be making a point, and he'd say, "Well, let's just take a second and imagine, if you will, that mm-hmm. you're in right and saying the scene, put you into the picture." Mm-hmm. And yeah. to your point, we all stop. We all listen. And it's it's such yeah. You know, again, we start building our own stories. Then right, we start thinking about right. this. And, and then
1: that probably became the most important, most impactful learning moment for you during that lecture, and it was probably five or ten percent of the lecture,
0: right? Yeah, and yeah. I and I found as I look back in my sales career and so on, is that yeah, I was using that. I would stop conversations and says, well, take a second. So just imagine, you know, and it's a powerful tool, and use that then as a, a pretext for telling a story,
1: right? You got it.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's. Yeah, we, right. So my concern, sort of leading back to the beginning, and then we'll get to your book yep. here, is that there's things we do, I think, inadvertently when people read about stories and so on that, that make it more complex. Yeah, Than it needs to be. Than it needs to be. And it could be as simple as we just talked about. It's just saying, well, just imagine for a second. You know, put yourself in. And that's, that opens the door, right? And then you, as I said, organize these, these experiences you had in a way that make it relatable to the buyer. And, and you're telling stories. You're having a conversation.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm writing that down right now. Okay. Organized experiences.
0: Okay. That's fine. <laughs> I'm here to help, Paul.
1: Yeah, you're you're doing it. Thanks, man. It's Keep not, it's, going.
0: It's not just the audience. It's our guests as well that benefit. So <laughs> all right. So let's talk about your your book. Um, ten Stories. Ten stories great leaders tell. I was gonna say ten great stories leaders tell, but ten stories great it, leaders tell. Could
1: probably work both ways.
0: Uh yeah, yeah. But I, I like it the way you have it. So I, I love these. And I I think uh yeah, you know, the good I see it as sort of like cultural touchstones, right? As an organization, which make them so important because especially in smaller organizations, startups I've spent you know, a good chunk of my career in, um, the successful ones were the ones that had this this, you know, common foundation that were built out of these these stories. And I'm not talking about, hey, we've two guys in a garage founder story, mm-hmm. but you know, things that you talk about that yeah, you know, a founding story is important, but it's not necessarily that one. So, uh, why don't you take us through yeah. sort of the <laughs> the highlights of stories? And then there's a couple I wanted to talk about in particular.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, where I came up with these uh, is you know I've been trafficking in stories now for almost a
0: decade. Um, and <laughs> you, make it, yeah. you, may, you make it sound like illegal arm sales, <laughs> or you're selling yeah, you're selling ivory. I guess it did. <laughs>
1: It did. Yeah. Okay. Let me say that differently. Uh, I've been working in organized experiences and cultural touchstones for a decade now. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to start with, what are the stories that my clients most frequently ask me for help with? Right. Because I wanted to know that these are real practical right. stories that I know leaders want. But I also wanted to make sure that these these were stories that I think every functional leader could use. These are not just stories for salespeople or just for the right. CEO or just for the COO. I mean, I have, every have, functional leader right, needs have, these.
0: Yeah, you have a couple well, one specific sales story, but others I think right. are quite relatable to sales. Yeah,
1: right. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, so well, you want me to just give you the, the list, and we'll, we'll get the yeah, list let's, out let's, there let's and go. talk about them. Let's go. You. Yeah. yeah. Go so the the first four kind of go together because they're about uh, setting direction for the organization. So that's where we came from. So that's that founding story, but mm-hmm. much better than the two guys in a garage story. We'll right. talk about why that is later. Um, why we can't stay there. So that's a case for change story where we're going, which is a vision story, and how we're going to get there, which mm-hmm. is a strategy story, right? Mm-hmm. Because strategy is about how to get from where you are now to where you want to be. Right. So that, that's the first four. The second four are more about who we are as an organization. So that's uh, what we believe. So that's a, a corporate value story. Mm-hmm. Who we serve. So that's a customer story, a story about the customer so our colleagues can have a visceral human understanding of who we're really working for what we do for our customers. So that's kind of a classical sales story or customer success story. And then number eight is how we're different from our competitors. So that's, I call that a marketing story because usually marketing's job is differentiating yourself from your competitors. So that gets us through eight. The last two kind of go together as well, but they're more about uh, more personal to you, the leader. So number nine is why I lead the way I do. Mm -hmm. A personal leadership philosophy story Number ten is why you should want to work here. You being whoever you're talking to, right. right? Because every leader's every leader's job is getting talented people to come in to the organization, not just HR or recruiting or whatever. Every leader needs to do that. So, so those are the ten I came up with. And essentially, as you know now, the, the book's got one example of each of them, and then some tips for how to find and craft your own.
0: Yeah. Well, let's start the the end, um, okay. because I I think that's. As you said, these are not just for CEOs. This is for anybody that's that's in a leadership position. It could be you could be a frontline sales manager, you could be whatever, right? Uh, a supervisor, an accountant, but it's it's you have to you have to understand what that story is about, why you lead the way you do, and why why you should want to work here. And I I always hearken back to this experience as one startup I worked with, uh, extremely successful um, CEO, but at the time was. Yeah, now they're a multi-billion dollar company. Back then we were nothing and and a handful of a couple of handful of people in a in a room. And and I asked him this question, and he said, Well, you know, I just I want to build a company that I would want to work at.
1: Mm.
0: And I always thought, wow, that was a great story. Right. Mm-hmm. To me, is is he just said, I want to build a company that I would want to work at. And I think he's accomplished that from growing from where mm. they are now to ten I don't know, close to ten thousand employees maybe and multiple mm-hmm. billion dollars in sales. It's like, yeah, he's done that, right? I mean, I'm sure it's not perfect. I I worked there for seven years, I haven't been there for a while, but it's like yeah, yeah, because I know they've got i actually I just had just run into him actually in, in the CEO and the founder in um in Hawaii a couple weeks ago. We had <laughs> we had drinks and and yeah, I think something like out of the first couple hundred employees, like still 125 of them are they're still there, right? After Wow, almost,
1: that's impressive. After
0: almost 25 years, right? So clearly, mm-hmm. I think he did that. Yeah. But what a powerful message you're sending to people. And I think of how often managers don't live up to that, right? Because if they ever stood back and said, would you want to work for you? It's like, yeah, probably not.
1: Right, so in his case, his founding story might also be a great recruiting story. Mm-hmm right because especially if he told them you know wh- what it was about the job that he left that he hated or didn't like and that he wanted to fix at the company he started so that it would be a company he would want to work for mm-hmm. and if you got into some of those details and how he did that 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 would make for a great founding story because you know nobody ever quit their job and risked everything to go start a new company for a boring reason right there's always <laughs> a good reason behind it yeah and and it sounds like he had one so that would that would become a great founding story but it also serves as a great recruiting story
0: yeah yeah um, another one was let's, let's talk about the the sales story um, because it's it, it struck me as not just a story that that leaders need to be able to tell but it's a story that Salespeople need to be able to tell as well.
1: Well, yes, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, with, with all of these, so that you know, there's one sales story, one marketing sure. story, you know, one recruiting story. The salespeople, of course, have got lots of stories that they need to tell, and the marketing people have lots of stories they need to tell. The HR people have lots of stories, but I think every leader at the company needs to be able to tell one good sales story, and they probably need to be able to tell one good marketing story and one good HR story. That hence this list of ten. Yeah, you can't be so functionally siloed that you only know about your discipline, right? You need to know a little bit about the others to be an effective
0: Leader, so um, so relate a little bit about the uh, the auction story that you saw there because I thought that was a really good one.
1: Yeah, so this is uh, this is about a guy named Ben Coberna who's the, the CEO of Easy Buy, and I'd never heard of a company like this before when I interviewed him. So it's a reverse auction company. Mm-hmm. Had had you heard of this type of company before?
0: No, I looked it up. I was reading the book. Okay, yeah. I, okay, <laughs> yeah, I hadn't, yeah. So
1: I hadn't either before I met this guy and interviewed him. So uh, so uh, and a lot of his clients haven't either. So mm-hmm. he has to tell a story to help them understand what on earth it is that we do. In fact that's right. kind of the purpose of the story um, and so he uh, it's a a reverse auction company gets a bunch of uh, companies who do something that your company needs and has them compete and bidding on your contract and whoever bids the lowest, wins. So that's why they call it a reverse auction. But that's still kind of confusing just for me to say those words, hence the need for a story. So he often tells them, you know, about one of his first clients. He said it was a a mid-sized city government in Florida, I believe. And of course, uh, they had a a municipal uh, water treatment plant and, you know, it builds up a lot of sludge and they need to, you know, cart that off somewhere. And there's a company whose job it is every week or month or day or something to go carry off all this industrial sludge. And, put it wherever it's safe i guess and they were paying $250,000 a year to this company to haul off this sludge and they thought well we'd like to save some money on that that's a lot of money so we'll hire this guy Ben Colbert, at easy buy and they'll do a reverse auction and we'll save money so uh, they hired him he he contacts a bunch of companies that can do sludge removal calls them all into this meeting where he's going to explain how this auction process works and, um and the meeting starts and the, the and all these different you know owners of these companies are coming in well, the guy who's got the contract now, right, the incumbent, the guy who's been hauling this stuff off for years, comes in in a tirade, right? He's got his lawyer with him. He's he's yelling and screaming. He kicks a chair across the room. He tells everybody, you know, you, you can't do this. This is illegal. You're going to go to jail. I mean, just, you know, terribly mad, right? Because he's about to get some money taken out of his pocket for sure, right? Well they eventually got him calmed down and you know explained how the auction was going to work and got everybody to start and so they all went back to their respective places of business and started the auction. You know, it's all online. Well he of course his first bid is $250,000, right? That's what he's been getting paid for years. Well somebody bids lower than that so he lowers his to 240 and then 200 and then 150 well, his next bid is zero, nothing. <laughs> and they, they knew, of course, that's a mistake. Like he just clicked the wrong button or whatever. So they, they pause the auction. They call the guy on the phone. They go, Hey, somebody made a mistake at your place. You put in a zero bid. So we pause the auction. We're going to give you 10 minutes to go put in the right bid and then right. we'll restart everything. Right. And he said, uh, nah, that, that won't be necessary. He said, that wasn't a mistake. I, I bid zero on purpose. And they're like, what, <laughs> what is wrong with you? That, that can't be true. Why would you do that? And he said look I've, I've been selling that sludge to farmers for years as fertilizer I'll, I'll just come pick it up for free yeah <laughs> and, and that's what he, what's what he's been doing ever since right? right so so the story accomplishes a couple of things for for Ben one is it explains in an easy language what a reverse auction is because yep. that's a confusing concept but now that you've heard the story you know exactly what it is but here's the really clever second thing that it does is it it answers an objection that most of his prospects have. um, And it answers it before they even ask the objection. And that objection is, if I do this, are my suppliers going to get mad at me? (laughs) Like, this sounds like something they're going to get really mad about, right? And and his answer is, well, yeah, they're all going to get pissed. But they're going to get pissed at me, not you. You're not even in the room. Mm -hmm. He kicked that chair at me. My job is to protect you from all of that. All you get to do is save money. Right. So it, it it brilliantly accomplishes both of those tasks in about a two-minute story.
0: Yeah. No, I thought <laughs> I just laughed at the story because it, it was such a great outcome. And I think a third lesson, too, is there when he agreed to do it for zero is that he can turn to his customer and say, sometimes you're going to uncover these things where... You know the people that are providing services. Yeah, they're making so much money off doing it that yeah, they'd be happy to do it for free.
1: Yeah, so he he can give them the statistics then that look, we typically save our clients twenty to thirty percent, but there's a range. Sometimes it's only three or four percent. Sometimes it's a hundred percent. You know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a great a great story. Um, well, so last one I wanted to talk about was the uh, let's talk sort of. Collectively about the first four, because I think, okay, and I I sort of throw the, I sort of throw the values in there a little bit too, because I I think (laughs) you know values are are not spoken enough about, um, Hmm. certainly in sales, because you know it is such a human to human business, and I think people uh, when they form impressions, first impressions, perceptions of other people, that values certainly play into it more than we want to give credit for, but but let's talk at least about those first four, because I think that. I think if if people understand that as an individual within an organization, you understand these things, it helps inform what you do in a way that that uh, makes you more powerful than if you didn't.
1: Yeah. So, uh, and it's you know it's four different stories, but we already started talking about the the founding story a little bit. So let, let's kind of close the loop on that because you've already identified one of the problems with most founding stories, and and it's that they almost all sound the same and they're terribly boring. It's. Mm-hmm. You know, my company started 30 years ago with two guys in a basement with three hundred dollars, and today we're on the Fortune 500 list, and we're in 75 countries around the world, and aren't we awesome? Yay! <laughs> you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Like every large company started small, right? By definition, right? They all started with two guys in the basement. They all were two ladies in a basement, or whatever, right? So, th- telling the entire history of your company in seven sentences is not inspiring to anyone, all right? Except for the person who did it, I suppose. The, the founding story should be about that critical moment where you decided to start the company because you were so, you know, frustrated with your nine to five job or the way that, you know, your company was currently doing things and you thought you could do it better or you wanted to start a company that you would want to work for. Or, you know, it's that, that, that pivotal moment where you make that really risky decision to jump and go do something different because that, that passion that that founder had for that. Making that decision and starting that company, you want everybody at your company to share that frustration and then the passion that follows to do it better. And the only way you can imbue them with that passion is to tell them the story of the founder's passion, not the statistics of two guys in the basement, three hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Now we're in like that. That's just that's not what inspires people. The struggle and the the the, the frustration and the passion is what inspires people.
0: Well, and then. Um, living it, right? I mean, I think yeah. that's the thing yeah, that you, you gotta, so often is you get this founding story and then they're not following through. The example I gave before, the guy that gentleman said, you know, I wanted to build a company that he wanted to work for. I think his inspiration for starting the company is he was working for this big tech company and had ideas that they just didn't want to do, right? They didn't want mm-hmm. to implement. They didn't want to go do this business. They didn't and felt handcuffed and mm-hmm. Yeah, what's the worst thing is you're supposedly in an innovative company and they don't want to innovate and take risks. And so he built this company where, yeah, people have they've grown by people taking risks. The, mm-hmm. the people who are growing the business are not uh, salespeople or business development people. They're engineers and other people with great ideas. And And I think that's why they've retained people, right? Because, hey, we're going to create an environment and we're short where risk-taking is encouraged. And and uh, if you got a good idea, Let's go do it.
1: Right. Yeah. So, let me, I'll try and summarize a little bit of the the next three. Um, So, you know, a case for change story is is typically a story about whoever it is that the change is going to benefit. So, if you realize your company needs to go through some major change, clearly somebody stands to benefit from that, right? It's either going to be the employees, it's going to be your customers, it's going to be your shareholders, it's going to be the community, like somebody's got to benefit figure out who that is and tell a story about them. Like what's, what's their frustration today and how's that going to be much better in the future after you go through this change. Mm -hmm. And that will inspire the organization to want to, because people want a human reason to do something, not, Oh, well our, our earnings per share will go up by three cents if we do this. (laughs) Like, who's that going to inspire? No, but if it's, this is going to save Sally in, you know, in accounts payable, Seven hours a week that she's now going to get to spend with her kids. You know, now you're talking about something that people can get inspired by. Or this new drug is going to save you know a, a thousand lives a month. You know, and here's here's uh, Jenny, the first one it's going to save because she's waiting for it right now. You know, yeah. um, the the vision story and the strategy story are two that I find leaders find the most difficult to tell stories about. Uh, interestingly, they're the ones that leaders often have the best understanding of already. Like any good leader in a company has a vision mm. for what they want the company to be. And they can usually articulate that in a few words. And they almost always have a very clear strategy. They probably all got a strategy document that's, you know, an 11-point font. And it's, you know, got lots of bullet points and numbers. And it's, it's really pretty format. And they vetted it through HR and <laughs> through the, you know, CFO. And, you know, it's, it's perfect, right? right. Um, but that's not a strategy story. That's a strategy document. And that, you know, and so then the vision sounds something like this. Um, We want to be the fastest growing restaurant chain on the East Coast, or we want to be the, uh, we want to make the world's quietest jet engine. Man, those are, that's a great vision, right? I might call that a goal or a mission, but anyway, that's a great vision statement, but it's not a vision story because it's not a story at all. So Mm -hmm. a vision, so you, you have to start with having the vision statement. You have to have a vision and you have to have strategy choices to start with but then you need to tell stories about those things. So a vision story is a future story. It's it's like you started uh, uh, earlier, imagine this. Mm-hmm. That's how all vision stories start. Imagine this. So this is 5 years into the future. Imagine it's going to be like this when we work in. It's you know the I think the example of the in the book is you know uses a a, a a a magazine article written 5 years in the future about how our company became, you know, the um uh you know most admired company mm-hmm. in America or something actually i think this right. is the strategy story and you're looking back at how did you accomplish that right. and and the vision story is a story about 5 years from now what's it going to be like to work here and why is that better than what it's like today because if it's not any better why would i want to help you accomplish that vision mm-hmm. right so the the vision story is it's always got to be about and the strategy story too the 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 heroes in the story have to be the people who work there who you whom you're trying to convince to embrace this vision and help you accomplish it. Right, so then that's a story, not just a list on a, on a document.
0: Right. Which <laughs> just serve sort of in closing, as, as you can see where some of those stories become problematic for leaders because you know, we've built this cult around the hero CEO and and too many that fall into that trap as opposed to saying, yeah, it's individuals that make this all happen, not the, uh, right. not the people at the top. So All right, Paul, we've run out of time, but uh, as always, it's been fabulous talking with you and great information. So how can people connect with you and learn more about your book?
1: Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for having me on. So probably the best place is my website, uh, leadwithastory.com. It's got links there to all the books and the training courses and uh, all the stuff I'm up to.
0: Okay, and they can connect with you through there too? Yep. Okay, perfect. All right, Paul Smith, thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for this week. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me. And I want to thank my guest today, Paul Smith. Join me again next week as my guest will be Chris Rudigran. Chris is the co-founder and CEO of Sendoso. Now, if you're not familiar with it, Sendoso enables B2B sales, marketing, and customer success teams excuse me, to send digital and physical gifts to their buyers and customers. That's really a cool concept in building deeper connections with your buyers. So, if you're not familiar with how gifting works, then you'll definitely want to check out our conversation. Be sure to join Chris and me next week right here for that conversation. So, that's it for this week. Thanks again for joining on Accelerate. And until next week, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.